0: Uh, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. and We're going to cover a ton of stuff here in Luke uh, chapter 9. Uh, if if you go to Israel uh, and to Jerusalem, uh, you will find in uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, you will find uh, a specially marked pathway that runs through the city. It begins about five minutes away. This is some video, just like a, a news report, where you can kind of see where they're talking about this. Um, Begins about five minutes uh, outside of the Garden of Gethsemane at what what some to, some believe was was Pilate's uh, fortress and where Jesus had his trial before his uh, crucifixion. The path uh, follows kind of kind of winds through Jerusalem through sites uh, that are marked. There's there's different things that are marked on buildings. So supposedly where Jesus fell and Simon had to carry his cross, uh, where he was beaten, uh, and it ends at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where. Since the 4th century, most, many Christians have marked the location of Jesus' uh, crucifixion and uh, resurrection. There's 14 stops along the way on this path. Uh, that are known as the Stations of the Cross. If you've been to our Good Friday service on uh, uh, around Easter, if you come to our Good Friday service, you would recognize some of those things that we do uh, at our Good Friday service uh, as... Um, we, we kind of borrow from the stations of the cross service and a few other services to create uh, our own unique thing on those Fridays, but uh, of those fourteen stations on, on this on this uh, route nine have direct scriptural reference. The other five are traditional stories that have really no biblical support whatsoever, but have kind of made their way into this ceremony into this pathway. Uh, This path has gone through a few changes in the 4th century, the 8th century, uh, and the 14th century uh, before it kind of settled on its modern uh, route that is there. And and any day of the week that you go throughout the year, you will see people walking this pathway. But if you go on uh, Holy Week or especially on Good Friday, you will have uh, thousands that will come to walk on this uh, path. It's called the Via Dolorosa, which means the way of sorrow or the way of suffering. And many will walk this this path in order to, in some way, literally follow Jesus on His way To the cross, many will incorporate times of of prayer, times of penance, uh, even like physical suffering. They will intentionally uh, hurt themselves along this way in order to somehow experience the pain and the suffering of of Jesus. Even walking the path, uh, some have been known to walk the path on their knees throughout uh, throughout the city. You guys can stop that video there. Um, And uh, so, so the, the 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 video the this. Way the Via Dolorosa is is a popular thing for people to come and somehow experience the suffering of Jesus, and I find this whole practice to be fascinating. In some ways, I appreciate the fanaticism and the commitment to their desire to follow Jesus. It is uh, admirable to want to somehow replicate the uh, the suffering of Jesus on that day and the crucifixion. There's a, a long history of, in in Christian tradition. Um, I don't think it's a good one, but there's a long history in Christian tradition that, that self harm and hurt is actually a way to absolve yourself of sin, that literal physical suffering is a way to purge yourself. Uh, from what you have done uh, that the body is nothing but a conduit to spiritual purity and that pain of the physical can set you free from pain and captivity spiritually if you've ever read the scarlet letter you had to read that in high school I hated reading that book in high school but if you ever had to read that book that's a key theme that is built into that book for others it's not the elimination of sin through physical pain, but the physical pain is tangible evidence of just how much you love Jesus. That enduring physical pain in the name of Jesus is the epitome of being a good Christian. I remember when I was in high school, uh, it was very popular. Uh, There was a huge push for us young Christians to study things like Fox's book of martyrs. DC Talk had a book out called Jesus Freaks. You guys remember that that book? And that that book had all kinds of stories about those who had given their lives for Jesus. Old uh, old saints and and new that had suffered uh, around the world and that had given their lives for. Uh, Jesus. There was a, r- a rush to celebrate stories of Christians that had died in school shootings and in September eleventh, as uh, their story of persecution and death should inspire us and, and and press us to be as good of Christians as they were. That was the mark of the great Christian. Those that were willing to suffer, especially those that were willing to die for jesus and certainly history is filled with the stories of men and women that give their life for jesus these are stories that are uh that are fueled that that fueled much of the early church especially those first few hundred uh few hundred years of the church that that it was not unusual for christians to have to give their lives in the name of their faith the book of revelation even points to martyrs and gives them their own kind of moment and spotlight in the scriptures So is this type of suffering truly the mark of a mature Christian? Whether we're talking about martyrdom and and stuff that you might read in a a book, or whether we're talking about something like the Via Dolorosa, whether whether it's something that is sought out that you go and do intentionally, uh, or whether it is suffering that comes to us and makes us a martyr for our faith. Is this the ultimate aim of Christian discipleship? In Luke chapter 9, Luke is weaving together some stories that all kind of play off of each other, uh, even though it feels like they are very disjointed. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at too many of them this morning. I'll just be honest with you. This could be easily four weeks worth of messages that we're going to cover this morning in one sermon. Uh, I think the thread in all of these is what makes all of these so powerful. Even though they have their own message and a great message, if they stand alone, Putting them all together, I think, uh, has a powerful message that comes together, too. I slow played it through Luke 8, so I thought I would speed it up a little bit through Luke 9 and draw this thread out from all of these stories. So in Luke 9, we're learning about the components of what it means to follow Jesus. That is, uh, if you want to kind of put it all in a nutshell, that is what's happening here in Luke 9. What is discipleship? And that's all tangled up with this question of who is Jesus? Uh, So if we're going to answer the question of who Jesus is and what it looks like to be his disciple, this is a great place for us to be. And what we're going to see is it's almost impossible to tie all these threads of discipleship together uh, because it's going to end up resulting in something that almost no one saw coming. Uh, We've seen Jesus at the beginning of chapter 9 commission his disciples to go out and to heal and to cast out demons. Uh, in, in Jesus' name, and they were given the power to do all of this, and they did it. They went out and they healed people, and they cast out demons, and they had the power, and they were able to do all of those uh, things until they didn't. We saw that at the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus says, you feed them, and they're like, what are you talking about? We can't do this, and uh, and uh, and then Jesus does it, But and then last week we saw uh, where it seems like Like, just when the disciples weren't quite getting it all together, weren't quite able to figure it all out, uh, jesus uh, they weren't really figuring out all that Jesus was telling them, Peter is able to finally kind of pull some things together, put two and two together, and makes this confession that he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus says he'll build his whole church on this very confession, that 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 Peter has made, that he is the Messiah, this realization of who Jesus truly is and what he came to do, Jesus is going to build his whole church on that. So it's kind of this this like this big moment, this glorious moment. And then we have what is the ultimate true like mountaintop experience. Jesus takes Peter and a couple of other disciples up the, the mountain and he says, I got something to show you. And he, boy, does he. This is what we saw uh, last week. He starts shining like lightning. Moses and Elijah show up for a brief moment, the kind of epitome of like the guys in, uh, in Israel's history. They show up for a moment there and, and are talking with Jesus. And uh, Jesus is, is shining uh, brightly. And, and, and they, they quite literally see Jesus in all of His glory. But as fast as the moment begins, it's over uh, and Jesus begins to head back down the mountain, uh, and these men are, are, are kind of blown away as to what they've seen. They're beginning to see that Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's not even a, a great prophet. He is, in fact, the Messiah. But even that title fails to capture just who this guy is. He's altogether different. He's totally different. They've not said it totally, but they, they've seen it. So now you can imagine if you've been given the power to cast out demons and heal the sick, and you've done it, you've been following this guy and suddenly realize this guy that you've been joking with, eating dinner with, camping out with, that he's something wholly different than you are. He's not the same thing. He's not just a good dude. He's not just a brilliant teacher. He's not just able to do miracles. He's got a power and a connection to the divine that you've never even read about, let alone seen. And now as you come down the mountains, armed with this information, uh, the, the Messiah, remember, anticipated ruler, anticipated king, military leader of Israel. That's what the Messiah was supposed to be to them. This, this guy, full of glory, is the guy that you're riding down the mountain with. You're probably going to have some expectations at that point, right? You're probably going to have some expectations about what you think is about to happen. But this is where everything goes sideways in this chapter. This is where everything begins to not make sense, especially if you're the disciples in their context. Because nothing Jesus says in the rest of this story is going to make much sense if your starting point is the mountaintop. If your starting point is this mountaintop experience with the glory of Jesus, if that is your starting point of what you expect to happen, or if your starting point is that Jesus is the Messiah, if that's where you start with those two dual truths, and I'm not minimizing those at all, but if you start with those two things, super powerful guy or super powerful, glorious guy who's supposed to be the Messiah, the military ruler. If that's your primary framework of who Jesus is and what he came to do, nothing else in chapter 9 makes any sense. And it's because that's actually the end. That's where we're heading. It's not actually where Jesus begins. So I'll come back to this here in just a minute. For now, let's back up in our story. Let's go back to that glorious moment of Peter's confession. And I'm going to read a lot of chapter 9 here. We're going to try to pull these threads together. Let's go back to that glorious moment of Peter's confession. These disciples have finally figured out some things, and Peter's confession seems to confirm their suspicions. Jesus is the Messiah, and that means that what comes next is that Jesus will finally begin the process of building this army that will liberate Israel from Rome. It feels like it's go time. And then Jesus says this... Luke chapter 9, verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's just keep going. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus could have said a lot of things in that moment. His disciples have just finally gotten something right. They've just gotten something right, and he's put himself out there as the Messiah. He could have said a lot of things. I'll just be honest. As a church planter, something that gets talked about a lot kind of in church planter, church planter you know pastor circles uh, is this idea of momentum and what's called momentum dynamics and Jesus has an amazing moment where he can capitalize on some real momentum here this is way bigger than like a good vbs attendance where you had some visitors that showed up right this is way better than just a good sermon series that kind of got the attention of a handful of people he's just confirmed that he's the next guy to take the throne and that if the prophecies are right he'll do it with some flair and He will actually show up Rome. Surely now is the time for Jesus to seize on this moment. And what does he do? He says he's going to die and that anyone that comes to be his follower probably ought to expect the same. What in the world? Why in the world would Jesus come with this message right here? I mean, he says it in a little bit of a coded way, but it's not like it's that veiled, it's pretty clear what he says is going to happen. Now, they don't fully understand what he's saying. We'll see that here in just a minute. But, but I, I think the reason they don't really understand what he's saying is not because it's confusing, but just because they don't want to believe it. Because it seems almost impossible that what he's saying could be true. He says whoever gives up their life will find it, and whoever tries to save their life will lose it. Now, we like to be hard on the disciples, and sometimes they deserve it, but they have to be confused at this point. None of this makes sense to them. Is he the Messiah or not? Because if he is, then there's some expectations that need to be met. But then this guy says he's going to die on a cross, and then his followers probably need to expect the same. That's probably not going to go on an army recruiting poster anytime soon. Come and die. that's what he says. It's certainly not the way that we try to paint the church to outsiders. Yet here Jesus is very definitely not trying to grow his army. And then he heads up the mountain, he shows his glory to Peter, James, and John, and for a thousand reasons their heads must have been spinning. You see, Jesus put that show on up in the mountains, and it's enough to make you forget that he just said, He's going to be killed. And as they're sorting through this, trying to work through what they've just seen with Jesus up in the mountain, Jesus comes down from the mountain only to be met by a story from his disciples and their utter failure at the the task that he has called them to do. Look with me at Luke 9, verse 37. On that next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. So the next day, came down from the mountain. Next day, a great crowd had met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. That's a rebuke, not to the father, not to the son, but to his disciples. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. <clears throat> but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, this story is one of my favorite ones in all of Scripture, especially the way that Matthew and Mark tell it. But I want to stick with the way that Luke tells it, because I think Luke is using this story for a very specific uh, purpose so the disciples weren't able to cast this demon out. While Jesus was gone, the, the rest of the disciples that were left behind were left to kind of tend to the ministry and they were not able to do it. And some commentators think that this shows that, that Jesus uh, was still showing his disciples that he was in charge, that they couldn't do everything uh, just yet. But I think, I think Jesus seems to think that they could have and should have been able to handle this one just fine. There was nothing about this demon that made it more powerful and you had to call in the big guns of Jesus to get this one out. I don't, I don't think that that's what was going on here at all the problem uh, wasn't the, the 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 boy it wasn't the demon it wasn't the father it wasn't the illness those weren't the things that were preventing things the problem was the disciples they were not relying on the father as they had been told their gaze had begun to to slip they weren't looking up they were looking uh they were looking around Just like when the the, the feeding of the 5,000. Their focus wasn't on the nature and the person of God. It was on the nature and the size of the problem. Their faith failed them because they believed in the power of the problem over the power of God. There's a whole sermon in there I'm not even going to get to. But that is what is going on right there. They believed that the, the problem was so big that they didn't even consider God might have an answer for it. And so whenever they try to cast out the demon, Jesus says that it's their lack of faith is what He rebukes them for. Because what they saw was the problem and the strength of the demon. So this chapter kind of bounces around. I mean, are you feeling the sense of like, uh, I don't know what the right word is that I'm looking for, but the kind of the, the equilibrium's off here. Like, you can't get your footing in this chapter. One moment you have Peter's great confession, the next moment Jesus saying he's going to die. One moment they're literally on the mountaintop seeing the glory of Jesus, and the next moment they can't handle the demon in this boy. Like, it, it's, it's wins and losses, wins and losses, wins and losses. You can't figure out, there's no momentum whatsoever. As soon as things start going in the right direction, things start going in the wrong direction. Sometimes that's by forces on the outside. Sometimes that's by Jesus initiating a conversation that says, hold on boys, everything's not as good as you think it is. It's from highs to lows, from wins to losses, to students proving insights to teachers, to students utterly failing at the basic mission that they have been given. From triumphal announcements to forlorn prophecies. How do we reconcile all of these stories that are all happening here just in this one chapter? Honestly, they seem to make opposite points. At one moment, they seem to confirm the glory and the power of Jesus. And at the next moment, they seem to confirm that Jesus is going to die and maybe he's not as powerful as they think. From the glory and the faith and the success of the disciples to their failure. And from the glory of Jesus to the death of Jesus. If we keep reading Jesus, it just keeps happening. It's the same kind of pattern. Everyone is standing there with their jaws on the floor after he heals this demon that they could not seem to figure out. Everyone is standing there with their jaws on the floor because he has just healed this boy. And then he says this. Luke chapter 9, verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, "So stop right there. While everyone was marveling, mouth on the floor, everyone looking, everyone, he's got their full attention, and they're all blown away by what they've just seen. Jesus stands up and says, you think that's something, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's actually not what he says. He says, let these words sing into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What? You just healed this demon nobody else could do. I know you think I'm amazing, but I'm about to be handed over to men. Yeah. Like what kind of rallying charge is that? Jesus, you've got a moment here. You've got followers. But they did not understand this saying. They didn't understand because it didn't make any sense. Like, Jesus, we just saw who you were on the mountain. We just saw what you could do with this demon. What are you talking about H- being handed over to men? And then it says it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So they're like, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand God says, I'm just, you know, the Father says, I'm just not going to reveal this to them right now. They don't don't understand this because they don't want to understand this. That's why it's concealed from them. Twice in just a few verses, Jesus tells them, probably on the same day, Jesus tells them that things are about to go sideways and it's going to get really, really messy. Twice they dismissed it. They, They dismissed it so much so. That, that listen to, I mean, the, the next like three stories that we get here just shows just how much they completely are off base on where Jesus is at. Jesus has got one thing that he's thinking about and they are totally like out in left field about stuff. Listen to this, you, you, if you've got kids, you can appreciate this, like how much they're off on what is actually going on. Look at this in Luke 9 verse 46. So this is this is after Jesus again confesses things they start to kind of walk and kind of get back on mission Luke 9:46 an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest are you kidding me Jesus up on the mountain, shining like lightning. And just a couple of verses later, they're like, nah, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, you're an idiot, you're, you're a fool. Look, you, you couldn't even cast that demon out. If I was there, I could have done that. And they start arguing over who is the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives he, him who has sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Let's just keep going. And then John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. We don't know who this guy is. He's not one of us. He shouldn't be doing that. Uh, we can't let him get credit for that kind of stuff. He's not, he's not part of the team. Uh, and Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So they're like, wait a minute, I don't, don't no. If anybody's going to get credit for this, it's us, not this guy. We're the ones with the power, not this guy. Let's keep going. And when the d- days drew near for them to, him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him and, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for them. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. They went on to another village. One thing after another, these guys are just like, hang on. We are better than everybody else. That guy's not on the team. We deserve credit. These Samaritans are terrible people. Do you want us to call down fire and just set the whole place uh, ablaze? Do you want us to just leave it in rubble? Just, just constantly, they're like, I, I'm better than him. I'm better than them. He's not with us. Just, this is where their mindset is. They are building their own kingdom on their own terms, with their own agenda, with their own rules. This is what the disciples are doing. And what they think they are doing is building that that kingdom on that agenda with with the king behind them, the Messiah behind them. But they're the ones that are building the kingdom. And Jesus is like, this is just not how it's going to go, guys. This is not how it's going. to One after another, at the heart of all of this, is the presumption that, that, that they are the best show in town, and anyone who, who, who thinks they understand anything needs to get on board with this. And every time, Jesus essentially looks at them and says, You fools. You guys are morons. You do not understand this at all, He pulls a child aside and he says, look at this child. This child has nothing. This child is, 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 is doing, doing nothing. You guys think you're so great. This child, who is no one student, who has no agenda, that is the kind of way that you are supposed to pursue me. I mean, it's just one after another where this kind of stuff keeps happening. The, the, the chapter feels so disjointed. And honestly, it would probably be easier to take any one of these stories kind of piecemeal. They all make their own good little sermon in and of themselves. It would be a great thing for you to talk through those in a discipleship group and work through each one of these and say, what does this one story about bringing the, the children to me, what does that teach us about the nature of faith? Or what do we learn about the nature of, uh, uh, of, of racism and of... uh of like ethnocentricity in the way that they treat the Samaritans. And what do we learn about each Each of these things has their own little sermon in there, but they're all together trying to make us point to one one thing and one kind of central theme. And so I don't want to lose the weight of what's going here if we separate them. So let's just keep going a little bit. And we'll see some things start to open themselves up here in just a second. But before we do that, I want to look back at one more verse that we just read, but we kind of, we kind of went by it real quick. Verse 51. And what I believe that, that verse 51 helps us to understand the way things are unfolding here in this chapter. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, this is Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I love that. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. I love the way that is worded, that kind of like little euphemism there. If you haven't picked up on it yet, Jesus knows exactly what is ahead of him in Jerusalem. He's hinted at this all throughout the book of Luke. You know, whenever he went over to the, uh, to the Gentile side of, of uh, the Sea of Galilee, do you remember he heals Legion and he tells Legion, go tell everybody what I have done for you. Why? Because they're Gentiles. Nobody's after him in the Gentile community. But every time he does something for someone within the Jewish community, he says, don't tell anybody about this. Why? Because he knows if it starts to grow, and if he, his, his kind of legend starts to grow among the, the Jewish community, he's going to be in trouble. And so he knows if he goes to Jerusalem, that's like going into the hornet's nest. He knows going to Jerusalem means he's going to die. He's very certain. In verse 51, it says he set his face to Jerusalem. So far, his ministry's been out on the countryside, right? He's not been in Jerusalem. Now, he makes a pivot. Very deliberately, physically, he makes a pivot from the countryside, and he's heading to Jerusalem, to the hornet's nest. And here's what you begin to see about Jesus, if you haven't seen it already. Jesus lived his life on purpose. Do you know what I mean when I say that? What Jesus did was very intentional. His life was intentional. And it was always advancing toward the cross. Always. And he took every step very deliberately this was not like, oh, I missed, I'm, this was a misstep here. I, if, I, if I had zigged when I should have zagged, maybe I wouldn't have died. If I had gone this way instead of going that way, then maybe I could have like, psyched out the Pharisees and they wouldn't have come after me. And I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have made this person mad or made that person mad. Man, I just politically miscalculated. No, 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 no. There was no political calculation that was going on for him. This was very much a calculated measure toward the cross. He was always advancing toward the cross. And so my question for you, and this will be the question that this chapter will will drive home for us, is are you living your life on purpose? Are you living your life on purpose? Do you know where your next step is taking you? Look at these next three pictures. These next three people were given in context And it'll show you, it'll give you a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. And we'll come back and try to tie some of these things together. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you will go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Three different men, three different reasons why following Jesus what uh, why, why they, they, they they are they say they want to follow Jesus, and three different times Jesus is like, "Yeah, but do you really three different times now, if Jesus was interested in building an army, if that was his purpose he 's got three fresh recruits right there. come on, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Run home. Take care of your family business. Do what you need to do. Say goodbye to mom and dad. Give your girlfriend a kiss. Let's ride. We leave at dawn. I mean, it's not hard, right? He could have done that. But instead, these three different people are all coming up to him, and he says, are you sure this is what you want to do? Because it seems to me like you've got other things that are going on. Jesus isn't saying family commitments are bad. Jesus isn't saying don't go to a funeral. Jesus isn't saying don't go talk to your mom and dad. Jesus isn't saying that what he's saying here, the point that he's making, is that if you're going to ride with me, if you're going to Jerusalem with me, then you've got to know you're all in on this one. And there is no sense of you kind of turning back and hesitating here. All in, you are coming. He's trying to underscore the nature of discipleship. That following Jesus will demand all of our lives. There is no Christian life that keeps some things for ourselves while we give others to Jesus. He is all of our lives, no exceptions. Listen to this quote. This is kind of a, a long quote here, but listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, "The cost of discipleship." He says, "The cross is laid on every Christian. The first, Christ, the first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to. Death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. It meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave a monastery to go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So is our call to discipleship. Glory is there. The Messiah is there. It will all come. But but glory and salvation come in only one way. Through the cross. For reasons we cannot fully know, God has ordained that salvation, joy, purpose, glory, those things cannot be gained except through suffering. But this is not the via dolorosa, anyone can walk a path and endure some pain. That is not our ticket to heaven. It is not our claim to be disciples. It is not even some glorified martyrdom. For it is one thing to die for Jesus. It is wholly another to live for him. When I do premarital counseling and I talk to the, the, this groom to be, this bride to be, as they sit there in front of me, the number one thing that I look for, that I try my best to communicate to them, the number one thing I'm looking for them is, are they willing to endure suffering for the other? Are they willing to endure something on behalf of the other? And now immediately our mind goes to like this big glorious thing and like, oh, would, this, would you die for your wife? Would you die for your whatever? Like, I'm not asking if they would die for the other one. The question that I'm trying to figure out is they, are they ready to live for the other one? And that's the only way that you know if someone is ready for that commitment. That's the makings of a good marriage. So that question that I was always asked growing up in high school as we would study these things, would you take a bullet for Jesus? Would you endure uh, martyrdom for Jesus? Would you be willing to be burned at the stake for Jesus as all these heroes of the past were? Would you be willing to do that? And if you would, good. But I think a question that maybe indicates our level of discipleship that is even stronger is, will you get up and humbly serve your wife today for Jesus? Will you get up and humbly serve your husband today for Jesus? Will you get up and humbly serve your church today for Jesus? Will you get up and serve those that are other today for Jesus? That's a better question. Jesus would love once people who would die for him, but much more people that would live for him. Now, none of this offsets the gift of grace through the cross. This is one of the things that I want to underscore for us here. Note that Jesus' face is set towards the cross. It says that he He is set for Jerusalem in the midst of His disciples' utter failure to understand what He's doing. In the midst of them arguing over who's the greatest while they're walking next to Jesus. Like... Jesus is right there and they're arguing. It, it, it is like a bunch of like, 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 like peewee football players asking who's the better quarterback while Peyton Manning is standing right there. Like that guy, not you guys, but it's that on like an infinite level. Like what, what are you guys doing? As they're arguing that, Jesus' steps are taking him to Jerusalem. He's not looking over at these guys that are foolishly arguing who's the greatest and being like, you know what, you guys earned it. I'm going to die for you guys. That's not what's going on here. They haven't earned his trip to Jerusalem. That was always his mission. And he was always going to accomplish it. There's There's no time that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, okay, now you get it. Now you're worthy. Now I'll go. He was always going. That was the mission. I hope that is an encouragement to you this morning. Jesus went to the cross not because you earned the salvation, but because that was what he came here to do. The cross was always going to come first. The point here is that a disciple is one who lays down their own agenda. Lays down their own pursuit of their own glory. Their own version of the kingdom. You see, this is why this chapter is so disjointed. Because the disciples have one version of the kingdom that they think is how it should be. And Jesus has an entirely different version. It looks entirely different. And they are all about their version. And they can't figure out why Jesus keeps talking about his version. But this is what a disciple looks like. This is the call to discipleship. To get on board with Jesus' version of what the kingdom looks like. And for whatever reason... The, the, the path to new life and the path to freedom and purpose and joy, it does not come through glory as you ride into town. It comes through suffering on a cross. And that looks different for every one of us. Every single one of us. But that much is true. So the question is, would they lay all of that down? All those earthly attachments, all those dreams and visions of what what the Messiah was supposed to be, all that glory that was supposed to be theirs, would they lay it all down in favor of this version that Jesus comes and says, this is what I'm doing. That's what the Christian life looks like. Not to earn the cross, but because of the cross. In calling us to come. And die. Jesus is not calling us to endless pain. He is not calling us to this endless kind of black hole that, that we never uh, are, are able to uh, make sense of. This is not just this endless sense of the more you suffer, the better disciple you are. That is not the point. That is not what He's calling us to do. But He, he is not calling us to endless pain when He calls us to come and die, but to unmatched joy and purpose. The call to die in the Christian life is paradoxically a call to life. The life we were always meant to live. One with Christ, the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means to be a disciple. The grace freely given. But to be a disciple, it demands all of us. And the rest of our lives will be spent living that out, trying to figure out, trying to to, to call Jesus and ask Jesus, Jesus, will will you show me what it means to die to my own agenda in order to follow you and theirs? And this is what we do as a church together. We ask that question, what does this look like for me now? That's what discipleship looks like. just a second, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here. We're going to uh, take these elements. We'll, we'll, we'll sing a song and then I'll come back up and kind of introduce these things. But it will be a reminder to us of what it looks like to follow Jesus, that He was always going to the cross for His body to be broken and His blood to be spilled. And that is now our call as well, that we too would take up our cross and follow Him. If you've never done that before, if you've never experienced that, if your call to discipleship has, has simply been, will you just you know, walk the aisle, pray the prayer, get the water, and then move on? There's no sense in which, in the Bible, in which that is what discipleship looks like. I would encourage you this morning to, 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 to examine yourself and examine your life. And see what else it is that you need to give over to God. That he might be able to give you new life in that area. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your grace to us. That we do not have to earn the call to discipleship. We do not even have to earn the right to be a disciple. But instead, you pursued the cross in spite of all of our failures. In spite of all the ways that we messed all these things up. But Father, let us not miss the call to discipleship that you so plainly give to us to take up the cross and follow you. Will you show us what that looks like in our daily lives? Show us what that looks like in our our relationship with you and help us to die to our own agendas and our own kingdoms in order to pursue you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.